pep, pep, bla, 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 bla. Hello, and welcome to See One, Do One, Teach One, the podcast dedicated to becoming a better medical educator. With me, Pick Mukherjee. And Tom Pereira. In this episode, Tom and Pick try to do math, and Tom has a bad burrito. I know how to teach an intern because anything I want to talk about, they probably haven't heard before and they're receptive and they haven't learned to tune me out yet. I find it much more difficult to find ways to engage the seniors, the people who've been with us for a while. It's because they know it all. They're, uh... they're good. That's good. They're good. So that means you did a good job when they weren't seniors to teach them. So I was trying to figure out strategies to teach my more senior residents who kind of know the facts. In fact, some of the times they know the facts better than me. So if all of the facts are agreed upon, then what do you teach? More important, I think, than teaching the facts anyway is teaching how to think. I don't think you can teach how to think as well when you don't have the facts. But once you have the facts, I really think it comes down to better understanding decision-making. Okay, I like that. I I, I think that the knowledge base is underappreciated as a fundamental thing you need just to navigate everything. Everything is easier. Efficiency, all that stuff is easier uh, when the knowledge base is there. Uh, But now uh, they, they present you a case, you agree with all the facts, and they say, this is what I want to do. And you agree with that too. So they say, Tom, I got this patient, and I think they need to be admitted, I'm gonna do this. And you're like, That's correct. Now what do you do? So one of the things I've been doing recently is trying to get the residents to tell me what the one thing that made their decision was. Whether it's a piece of the history, whether it's part of the physical exam, whether it's a diagnostic test that's going to say cardiac or not cardiac or whatever it is. And, And having them break down these often incredibly vague rambling stories into key pieces, key pieces of the history, key pieces of the physical exam, and then come up with the one diagnostic test that's going to make more of a difference. We're going to send 50 diagnostic tests, blood work, all that stuff, but it's it's going to be this one test that's, uh, that's going to make the decision. Okay, so we're doing a lot of stuff. A lot of it is low yield, and, and maybe we should just consider not doing things that are too low yield, but the one thing, the hang your hat on thing, the thing that makes the case in this scenario was X. And what if they tell you a thing and even though you agree with the management, you disagree about the X. You're like, that's not the thing. Well, that's fantastic because that's where the teaching happens, right? So if they get everything right, well, then good God, graduate them. But I think what you're going to find, and I, I did this just the other day, we had someone with GI bleeding and, you know, the management of GI bleeding becomes, you know, banal for one of my third year residents. They can walk through it with their eyes closed. But when I had them break the case down to what were, what are the decisions that completely change your management, it was interesting because they were like, well, uh, upper versus lower. And I'm like, yes, that is one of the important ones, but that's almost more important later when you're figuring out what service is best going to have them in-house. And and I finally brought them back for me to, you got to start with, could this be esophageal varices or not? And figuring out if they have liver disease being one of the most important first steps in a case like this. So you have a different sort of model of approaching it, where one of the first questions is, 
do I need to worry this guy's going to bleed out from a variceal bleed? Whereas to a junior who's doing everything right, because in many cases it's not a variceal bleed, so it's not even on the radar, and then at the back end they might go, oh, I wonder if there's a liver disease, or I wonder if there's on a, on a blood thinner of some kind, and, and, and you're sort of prioritizing that as a main uh, one thing. Well, and I think it's really helpful because, as I said, a lot of the stories when you get them are incredibly vague, but your management hinges on whether or not you're going to think about octreotide and whether you're going to really need to deal with the, the bleeding problems that come along with liver disease versus, you know, something like upper versus lower, which has, as I said, you know, GI bleeding has to do with resuscitation and you're going to resuscitate them no matter what, but the rest of your therapy is much more dependent on, on whether it's esophageal varicose disease or not. Okay, so I think we teach people this idealistic uh, story, this illness script, where this is like the classic patient who gets this. This is an elderly, AFib, off anticoagulation, on digoxin, who comes in with sudden abdominal pain, and we prime people to think of a diagnosis. But we don't kind of, on the back end, do the only one of those things is true things, right? So uh, part of it is, I think, how we teach it. I think uh, a biliary disease is a nice one. Oh, everyone knows the Fs of biliary disease, right? Not the cursy ones. The uh, fat, fertile, female, 40. I guess fat's not even very politically correct right now. But then you get a case, and there's no... But overweight doesn't start with an F. No, that's no good. What's FOF? Like, FOF <laughs> is no good. Off. You get off the diagnosis of biliary disease. So then you get a case where none of those four things are true. This is a uh, much older, much skinnier, non-fertile man who has no postprandial symptoms, food has nothing to do with this at all. And then you do an abdominal exam. And they have right upper quadrant tenderness. And now you have a one thing whose sort of weight outweighs all of those other negative things and you're going to get an ultrasound. So I, I really like that. The younger residents, the early residents especially, wonder how we as attendings can walk into the room and come out a very short time later and say, this is what it is, or yes, I agree with you, we should get that test. And it comes down to, I stop asking a lot of those other questions uh, once I poke their up right upper quadrant uh, and had incredibly palpable pain. Now, doesn't that look like sort of being a non-thorough attending? Uh, because I'm, I'm sure one of the criticisms of emergency medicine from other services is, how did you not know that his third cousin was deaf and also syncopized? I think that the physical exam sometimes gives you yes and no answers, which is rare in medicine, and you probably should listen to those. I find that people over the phone need a lot of information and want everything to line up into their script for a given disease, whereas once you walk in the room and actually lay hands on a patient... The script goes out the window when you have a finding. So a certain positive finding could upend the whole carefully crafted story. And that's the thing. And that would be the thing. And actually the, what is it, the Society for the Improvement of Diagnostic Medicine lists a inadequate physical exam as the second most common reason to misdiagnose. So this is the, did you look at the back? Because there's blisters on the back. Uh, and I don't think we need the rule out kidney stone pathway because it's shingles. So I, I think that forcing a resident to think about what they are using, what is that one, you know, tipping point exam, and it's not really always one. I'm using one as an example. Sometimes it's two or three in a given case, but I think it, it allows them to start moving 
in a lot of ways faster because all the patients that they see that have that it, this is what they're wondering about they've already put in the work to say what are the key tests the key things i need to ask and all that and i know efficiency isn't always what i'm striving for but it's part of our job and i think this stuff really helps that so i'm gonna bring up a thing that uh I, I feel like we enjoy arguing about, but we do argue about, which is chest pain. Because you said physical exam uh, and a positive physical finding is a really hard to argue finding. In, in the workup of chest pain, I wonder if it's ACS, uh, very, very often the physical exam, it doesn't give you anything. So what's the one thing that you're going to come up with for something that I've been told that there's no single uh, feature that locks in the diagnosis? So I think chest pain is one of those things that is difficult to break down to a single decision. Often the decision is whether I need to go after cardiac or I need to go after other thing. And I don't love laboratory tests, but I got to say, now it's become EKG and troponin more than anything in the history or physical. Which, which is exactly the point of there is no one isolated thing in chest pain often. Uh, what Except I would, those are the things. Those like, are the things. The things right. are not a physical exam thing. They're this other test. So I think the other valuable thing is when you both see that patient and you and the senior resident both agree that we are bringing this patient in and you still ask them what's the thing uh, and they tell you, well, it's because nitro cured the chest pain. I'm sure that you... Oh, that's so painful to hear. Yes, we, we all know that nitroglycerin and whether it cures the pain is as close to equipoise as any test would be. So it in no way helps the diagnosis. So it cures just as many non-cardiac chest pains as it cures cardiac chest pains. And yet, people come with a little note from their doctor that says uh, he wants more Prilosec for the burning that happens whenever he goes off Prilosec, but I gave him a nitro. So I sent him to you because he said he felt better. I think, I think this is exactly when having this discussion with the resident is most useful. Because if you find that your resident or whoever you're working with is using that as their decision, as their one thing, then that's exactly where you, you go back and you, you actually give them the percentages and you show them that, yes, they're at the right place, but they may not be getting there the right pathway. And that means that the next time they're going to end up in the wrong place. No, it maybe they'll put weight onto Something. a different test, that's, a different point. That's fine. So let's let's use our medical words. We are <laughs> dirty words. No, no medical words. Let's let's say that what we are saying is that we have a, a probability of the diagnosis. Uh, and we alter it based on the likelihood ratios of Ooh, lots of... likelihood! See? Uh, that's kind of a mathematical word, I guess. Don't, but... don't make me do math. You don't have to do any of the math. You just have to, like, maybe look up the number. So what we're saying is that the likelihood ratio, the positive likelihood ratio of response to nitro is, is one. E equal either way. doesn't matter. Uh, whereas the likelihood ratio for something like right upper quadrant tenderness for biliary disease is is good uh, and beats out all of those mildly negative likelihood ratios, the lack of food-related, the lack of overweightness, the lack of fertility, uh, that kind of thing. So we have a misunderstanding of the positive and negative likelihood ratios of a lot of the things that we put weight on. I think that is quite true. I do not think we necessarily weight things properly. You have a quick breakdown for likelihood ratios for our audience. So we, we all know that there's a there's a nomogram for this where it depends on your pretest and the likelihood ratio changes the, the post-test. 
But the reality is, if your pretest is 99, you don't care much, and even a negative likelihood ratio doesn't move you, and if the pretest is close to zero, same thing. So let's talk about kind of on-the-fence diagnoses. I'm between 40 and 60% on a given thing. Well, a positive likelihood ratio that moves me toward the diagnosis, if equipoise is 1, then I think of it as a positive likelihood ratio of 2, 5, or 10, moving my pretest by 15, 30, or 45 percent. So in my brain, I'm thinking, okay, if I'm on the fence, if I'm 50-50, really, and you give me a likelihood ratio that is 10 or greater, I'm going to add 45 percent to my number and come up with a near lock, a high 90s number, and say, that's it. And, and conversely, moving me away, I'm going to go the, 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 the reciprocal of that. So it would be uh, 0.5 for a half, 0.2 for a fifth, and 0.1 for a tenth. So a negative likelihood ratio that is less than 0.1 should give you a near lock. Uh, and those are, that's the thing. That's yeah, and I'm simpler. I like to avoid math in particular. I absolutely am going to uh, ignore 0.5s and 2s because they're meaningless to me. And really, unless you get close to the 10 times more likely or 0.1 uh, times, uh, I that isn't the test that's going to lock this. This isn't the, the one thing, the one test. So that is a, a good way to think about it. But I also would point out that there aren't a lot of things that are 10 or greater or 0.1 or less. And in fact, there are far more useful positive likelihood ratios than there are useful negative likelihood ratios. So it's almost like, and, and I just conceptually think of this as, the best way to rule out something is to rule in something else. Uh, using lots of negative... Well, this is why I love CTs for PE, right? Oh, because if I, don't find, you... if I don't find the dang PE and I find a pneumonia then I am pretty comfortable. Did you throw that in because I brought up nitro? I did. Is that, that was just, that's just, <laughs> come on, like quid pro quo in me or something. Um, uh, but, but really, because you prognosticate before you investigate, you already have a pretest for PE that does hinge on making an alternative diagnosis. It's in the Wells criteria. Is PE the most likely diagnosis? Uh, and when there is a, a better alternative diagnosis, it reduces the likelihood of the PE. If you have a lock on the something else, then you can probably get off of this one. And that's why chest pain, you, you actually said it, chest pain doesn't have a single thing that rules in chest pain, but what it might be useful to take that history is if it leads you in a different direction, a different diagnosis. So Pick and I have some disagreements around chest pain. Oh boy. And at least one of those chest pains uh, problems has to do with right arm pain. Pick? Well, Tom, the literature says that apparently uh, central sternal chest pain or left-sided chest pain uh, is a wash for the likelihood of being diagnosed with ACS. But right-sided chest pain has a greater likelihood with an odds ratio of two to three. Is that, is that about right? That, that's what you like to say, yes. And, and I, <laughs> I have been trying to point out the biases around right-sided chest pain uh, since we've started this argument uh, probably five years ago. So... I will Only say, you think it's an argument. I think we're a lot closer than you think. So I believe that if you are being put into a chest pain study and you are the patient who had a burrito and it, it made you uh, have uh, some epigastric pain and a little bit of nausea that went away when you took Tums and you have left-sided pain to go with that, left-sided arm pain or central chest pain, uh, you will be included in uh, a chest pain study without any doubt at all. 
if you ate the same burrito and had the same Tums and you had right-sided pain, you're probably not even included in that pain. But if you had crushing chest pain, sweating and shortness of breath, and had some right-sided pain, yeah, we'll include you in this study. So I'm going to use some, some doctor words again. Okay, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> but, but our argument, when you break it down, it's not much of an argument. Um, your qualm with these studies is about spectrum bias. You are saying that left-sided chest pain has historically immediately raised the specter of your heart and everyone includes you, whereas the people that you were included with right-sided chest pain, for the clinician to even consider admitting to the hospital, must have had some other features. So spectrum bias. We are including more of the sicker patients. I agree with you, but I think it happens for a different reason. I think that the bias is availability bias. I think that if you are home, and a baseball hits you in the chest, and you go, ow, and there's a bruise in your left chest, and then you mention to someone, I have this left chest pain, they force you to the hospital, and they go, you know that could be your heart. Everyone knows that. My left hand was tingling. You sure it was your left hand? Because I, I heard it could be your heart. And so the availability of those patients with central or left-sided chest pain, who themselves self-select that maybe it's my heart, is high. Whereas what does it take for a right-sided chest pain guy to show up to the ER? It takes four days of him saying it's a muscle, I know it can't be my heart. I coughed that day. It's probably that. And then when he feels really bad, he shows up. Which is why the key thing for cardiac is a freaking troponin and EKG. Because we are going to have this argument forever, but I, I think we both agree that there is a bias here. And it doesn't matter because uh, if it says don't blow off right-sided chest pain, that's fine. They might be sick. Fair enough. So, Pick, do you have the article for today? The article, it's the time where we do the article. Um, I was supposed to, was it Was it the chest pain thing with the... Fine. I, I didn't do we the homework. We, we won't do the article of the day. Instead, I just want to make sure that our audience is aware of one or two books that I think should be in the armamentarium of... Of most clinicians, but you, certainly you ever an teacher. Audience? You think, are people going to listen to this? I, I have kids. <laughs> okay. I will make them listen. What's the reference? For 20 years now, I have been referencing the book, Evidence-Based Physical Diagnosis. Uh, we are up to the fourth edition. That is by Stephen McGee. I think that it very succinctly gives you how useful physical diagnosis is. So I didn't know it was by a guy named McGee, but I've had uh, bits of it photocopied and handed to me and referenced. I will say that I am a fan of the JAMA clinical uh, RCE clinical exam series, the rational clinical exam, because I can actually spot check it and look up malaria. What are the one or two things? So I, I think that the that, that uh, allows you to look at different things. I also think that physical diagnosis isn't as helpful, is often not absolutely the one thing. So I think uh, another book that works very well is the Evidence-Based Emergency Care, Diagnostic and Testing, and Decision Rules. Jesse Pines is the primary author. Actually, I just realized there's a brand new second uh, edition coming out, so I am probably going to get that. Well, if we're talking about a book that I haven't read but I'm going to probably get, uh, there is a book called Symptom to Diagnosis, which also just came out with a new fourth edition by a guy named Adam Sifu. Uh, uh, so that's probably my next purchase. So, sorry, no articles to reference, but at least one of these books I think would really influence and help anybody's practice. Okay, Tom, uh, we're at that point. What is not a thing? 
So today, for what's not a thing, I want to tell a story. I teach statistics, biostatistics uh, at the medical school, and I was running through likelihood ratios, uh, and one of the medical students starts to flip through their notes and, and starts to look a little agitated. And finally, they raised their hand and they said, well, where do I look up the pretest probability? Uh, they, they wanted the chart, the, the this what, is it. What book is that in? Yes. The, 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 the evidence-based pretest probability right. so, by Stephen McGee. So sadly, that's not a thing. What? So, it is the beginning point. Right. So it is the beginning point. And there was one point where uh, we were talking about pulmonary embolism in conference. And I, out to the residents, asked uh, a first year, a second year, and a third year for a given case to write down what they thought the percentage uh, that this person would have a PE. And they were off by uh, a factor of 50 from each other. And sadly, I think that's not... An unusual thing, uh, going back to chest pain, that's another, what, what is the risk of this patient? And we don't seem to be able to agree. So what'd you tell the student? So what I said was, pretest probability is how likely the diagnosis is when you start. And each of us, by our experience, by whatever we've read, uh, and by the story and what we have already that the patient tells us, that's how it's determined. So I'm going to say that if it's if there's no symptom, if it's an asymptomatic patient, then I know the answer. The pretest is the the prevalence. Is this? It's a, it's like a screening, right? The problem is as soon as you actually have a patient who has a problem, you are supposed to adjust, and we can't seem to really agree on how to adjust. But but all that stuff about likelihood ratio it starts with the pretest. So you're right. telling me that that now it doesn't matter what the one thing is. So it 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 does matter. So for me, low risk chest pain can often go home. I need a test that takes it from low risk, whatever number I assign that, to medium risk, whatever number I assign that. So whether my pretest probability is 1 in 200 or 1 in 10, if the test I am doing changes the, the, the likelihood enough so that I now believe that they are medium risk, which may be a different number than yours, and I do the right thing by the patient, that's what's important. So we may not agree on the starting point, but if we agree on the waiting, we are more likely to end up in a sim more similar place. So actually that's hopeful because that means that all we gotta say is that above this threshold, we have an actionable item. And I agree with you, Resin, we are admitting the patient. So it is more important to understand and work with the things that change that weight mm -hmm. and understand how much they should change that weight than having an absolute number to begin with. So this week, I am saying an absolute number for a pretest probability ain't a thing. Nice. And I, I, I like it. We can actually say that uh, we can have two different ways of math and arrive at the same reasonable conclusion. And the exploration of the one thing and the weighting just keeps the bad math out of it. If the math is wrong, it's not going to work. But we can have... You can have Two ways to solve an equation. Bad math. I like it. By the way, the guy who doesn't do math teaches the biostats course. At the, that's a nice role modeling, Tom. So, Pick, what are we going to try today? I think I'm going to try uh, the waiting the idea. And what I'm going to do is instead of talking out loud and showing my work, I'm going to ask the resident to talk out loud and show their work and decide what their one thing is. And maybe if we disagree, actually go look it up in some kind of, you know, evidence-based textbook. I like it. So, so that's sort of two things. One is you're going to make people define their one thing. And the second one being that if you either disagree on the likelihood ratios, or even if you don't, 
see if you can find an actual reference that gives that like there you go we're gonna back it up so show our math i like it let's show the math thanks for listening go out there and make better doctors get out there and make doctors better